Welcome to the KPMG Tax Now podcast. In this podcast, we explore some of the more complex matters across tax, economics, regulation, and compliance. Each month, we meet with KPMG's foremost experts and other special guests to unpack key issues faced by taxpayers around the globe. Hello, and welcome to KPMG Tax Now. My name is Peter Oliver, and I'm an international tax partner, and here with some of my colleagues today. And we're here to discuss some proposed new uh, legislative reforms dealing with intangibles, a new intangible integrity measure that was announced in the government's last budget. So an exposure draft has dropped, um, which we've had a bit of time to analyse, and Treasury is now open for consultation until 28th April 2023. Now, significantly, the proposed changes are intended to apply to amounts paid, liabilities incurred, or amounts credited on or after 1 July 2023. So there really is a very short runway before these rules will come into effect, assuming they're legislated somewhere near the form of the exposure draft. And the rules are incredibly broad. They apply to the exploitation of intangibles by a significant global entity under a wide variety of arrangements, whether formal or informal. And where they do apply, they will deny deductions in Australia where a payment is made offshore and an associate drives income in what's known as a low corporate tax jurisdiction. Now, we'll explore all of these concepts and terms today and we'll talk on some uh, some examples to bring them to life so that hopefully this will give you a bit of a sense of what you should be thinking about for your own group as well as feeding into Treasury's part of consultation if you're going to do that. But before we go any further, to introduce my speakers here, so today I have Sophie Lewis, who's a transfer pricing partner with me. Uh, We've got Paul Sorrell, who's a corporate tax partner specialising across uh, a lot of multinational groups, uh, a lot of work across different sectors, and Jen Tarr, a director with him in corporate tax as well, who specialises in the same areas. So team, thanks. It's, It's great to have you all here. Looking forward to the conversation we'll have. Perhaps just before we do dive into some of the particular aspects I'll just quickly go over the high-level concepts relevant to the rules. So as I mentioned before, the rules are expected to apply for amounts paid, liabilities incurred, or amounts credited on or after 1 July 2023 by a significant global entity, broadly a member of a group with global annual income of $1 billion Australian or more. Um, Where a payment's made in relation to the exploitation of intangible assets, and intangible assets here takes its ordinary meaning but is very broad, as we will explore, and an associate derives income in a low corporate tax jurisdiction, which itself is a new concept, and we'll talk about what that means, but in a broad sense where the lowest corporate income tax rate is 15% or less, then Uh, the proposed rules will deny deductions for that payment in Australia. And as as I mentioned, they're very broad because it looks at transactions between associates, which is broader than the the, uh, control group concept that we have in hybrid mismatch rules. So it can look at things such as significant influence between entities, which is not a 50% ownership test. It can be a lot less than that. Um, And it looks at arrangements or related arrangements. So it could be where there's a right to exploit intangible assets either in a contract or that's not in a contract, where there's a practice or permission um, of uh, an owner of IP outside Australia allowing an entity in Australia that's its associate to use that in a commercial way or any way with their business. So we will explore that in some examples today. So they're the high-level concepts just to set the scene, why don't we dig into that a bit more? 
And Jen, why don't we start with you? Tell us what is an intangible asset? Um, so intangible asset is described um, this very, very broadly. Um, so it takes on its ordinary meaning and it goes beyond um, those assets um, such as intellectual property assets, which would usually be afforded legal protection. So um, we've got things like copyright, um, patents, um, registered designs. Um, but importantly, it also includes things now such as um, valuable confidential information, algorithms, um, software licences, um, tr trademarks, patents, leases, licences and um, other rights over those assets. The legislation or prescribed legislation will also include situations where um, specific types of assets may later be prescribed as intangible assets. Um, there are some limited exclusions in the definition of an um, intangible asset and they include rights in respect of or interest in tangible assets. Um, and also um, interests in relation to estate over land um, and rights in, res in respect of that. So it also ex excludes Division 230 financial arrangements. Um, and again, there's also um, an ability to prescribe certain regulations which would exclude um, certain assets from being an intangible asset. Basically, a whole range of things with a few specific exceptions, but otherwise anything intangible in a very broad sense. Yes. Okay. There's very limited exclusions. Okay. And what does it mean to exploit an intangible asset? Um, so I guess the one thing we probably should have, um, I should point out is that um, the exposure draft legislation itself um, is not very long, um, but the EM itself um, does expand a lot on those concepts and in, in many ways probably um, says a lot more than what the exposure draft actually does. Um, so in terms of exploit, again, um, that's also very broadly defined to include use, market, um, sell, license or distribute, um, supply, receive or forbear, um, exploit, um, and another intangible asset that is a right respect of or an interest in intangible assets, so um, things like derivative works. Um, but lastly, there's a clause that talks about do anything else. Um, so that is extraordinarily wide. Um, so the EM also then talks about circumstances where there is a mere permission um, to exploit an intangible asset. Um, so it doesn't even need to be a very explicit right that's provided under contract. Um, it could be um, it could be merely a permission, um, whether it's I guess um, stated implicitly or not, um, explicitly or not. So it could be an implicit right. Um, the EM talks about I guess provides an example where um, the a genuine supply and distribution arrangement shouldn't fall within scope of these rules, um, but it provides very limited guidance as, as to what that actually means, what a um, genuine supply and distribution arrangement is. Um, so there is a comment in there that then says, well, if there is a use of intangibles or if there is a mischaracterization, then those arrangements could again be within scope of these rules. So there's probably very limited exclusions to the word exploit. Just to pick up your point, Jen, about the EM being you know, potentially broader than perhaps the ED. Um, there is a, a section in there uh, around some examples, right? And interestingly, the EM talks about um, a couple that are worth just highlighting, Peter, you know, but one of which is an example might include accessing information contained on a database, um, which actually is potentially quite um, pervasive in, in terms of, um, you know, a, a classical multinational uh, these days particularly. And another one, Another example here is the deploying of or accessing the output of an algorithm, which again, uh, wouldn't say is unusual, uh, you know, for multinationals these days to potentially um, see that it's potentially relevant in, in their situation as well. So 
um, I think, Jen, yeah, I agree with you that, that there's certainly this expansiveness about the EM and some examples there are quite um, enlightening in terms of um, the thinking that may underpin some of these provisions. And when you think about that and you think about inbound groups into Australia or even outbound groups, anything cross-border, um, inevitably, if you look hard enough, you'll find somebody in Australia accessing information that's held outside Australia within a group um, or accessing something that is the use of or the result of an algorithm. Because an algorithm, you know, something in Excel spreadsheet at its most simplest. So that's that's incredible. Okay, um, so, so that's helpful. Um, there's, there's a fair bit, I think, then that um, people need to think about as to what an intangible asset is. Now, Jen, you mentioned mischaracterizing payments. So let's talk about that a bit. In fact, actually, before we go to that, Jen, um, there's a nexus question here, which we were talking about earlier on today, which is this doesn't require just a direct payment, does it? No, so um, these rules will apply to both direct and indirect payments. Um, so in the EM, it's basically said that a strict tracing and flow of funds is not required. Um, so there's, it's not necessarily necessary to show that um, one payment funds the other. Um, so they have borrowed concepts from the imported hybrid mismatch rule, um, notwithstanding the fact that the provisions are drafted very differently to the imported hybrid mismatch rule. The EM comments um, do replicate that in, um, in the hybrid rules. Um, so Peter, you mentioned obviously also that it's not a control group concept, it's also an associate concept. So again, um, between um, the fact that it can apply to um, transactions between associates, um, the fact that there's no funding nexus and that it also applies not just to the arrangement but also to related arrangements um, makes, the whole ex makes the whole set of rules very, very broad. Mm. So for those of our listeners that may have had the pleasure of going through an imported mismatch uh, compliance exercise, um, looked at the ATA's expectations in its uh, PCG on that. When you think about what this might mean, you've got to try and work out your starting point offshore as to where an intangible is and what an arrangement is and then look and see if you've got payments that might be coming back into Australia using those same concepts of the important mismatch that it does not need to directly fund. One payment does not need to directly fund another. So this could could potentially even be more challenging uh, and it will be interesting to see um, what the expectations are from the tax office around documenting and evidencing this uh, when we get to that. Okay, that's an important point to have noted. Thanks, Jen. <laughs> Sophie, mischaracterisation. What is a mischaracterised payment? So I think that it's, again, just going to the, the broadness of this measure and I think that, that sometimes our listeners might think, oh, that I'm okay because I don't actually make any payments offshore for intangibles. And this this part of the EM specifically addresses this issue of mischaracterisation of payments and it's otherwise known as mislabelling of payments. So that is where um, perhaps a subsidiary in Australia is, is making a payment to a, a low-tax jurisdiction and the label on that payment is a service or the label on that is, is a tangible good or cost of goods sold. And um, this is effectively saying, well, maybe all of that payment or perhaps part of that payment is actually for an intangible and that, that element is going to need to be bifurcated out so that that portion of the payment can be denied. And 
the ATO has raised similar concerns in relation to the mischaracterisation of payments in connection with royalties in order to avoid royalty withholding tax. They, they issued a, a taxpayer alert 2018-2 which set out these types of similar concepts. Of course, here we're talking about a much broader concept, not a royalty, but this broad concept of an intangible. Um, and effectively, the EM discusses that the deduction should be proportionally denied where the payment is made for other non-tangible things. So I think we've just discussed that, that if you're, you're making a payment for a service and the ATO determines that part of that payment relates to an intangible there's going to have to be a very complicated exercise to work out the value of the different components of that payment. So in order to be able to deny that part of the payment, um, it's likely to involve valuation and or application of transfer pricing concepts and methods in order to arrive at an appropriate outcome. Um, the only other thing I would mention is that the EM mentions that there may be a shortfall penalty provision, uh, which is being considered to penalise SGEs who mischaracterise payments in order to um, avoid this measure and or withholding tax. And I think that it's really important that there's going to have to be an education process here because I think that most multinationals are not going out of their way to mischaracterise their payment, that they are simply thinking, oh, this is a service or this is this is a tangible good that I'm paying for, even if it might have an intangible element attached to it. Mm. And, 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 and when you think about it, so as you're saying, Sophie, there's people who focused on have I got a royalty element in there because the tax office has been looking at that, so they know to think about that. With the definition of intangibles being much broader, this is, as you said, multinational groups aren't necessarily mischaracterising, they're not even thinking about that. So in a sense, there's a part here in these proposals that actually runs counter to commercial practice of most multinational groups as we've experienced them, and that's fine. There's a policy choice here in the rules, but it will require an adaptation of form for groups to prepare for these and start thinking, what are my intangibles? What part of my payments relate to them? And do I have an indirect or direct tracing from Australia that ends up somewhere else in a low-tax corporate tax jurisdiction? Yeah, that's right. And I think a lot of multinationals, they, they um, look to um, be as simplistic as possible. They, mm. they don't want to have lots of different types of arrangements um, for every single country that they, they're dealing with because that would be an administrative nightmare from their perspective. So it's... They, they do try and make especially their transfer pricing arrangements relatively simplistic so that that is something that they can roll out easily and make sure that they're adhering to the transfer pricing rules around the world, um, as an example, and then just to say, well, in Australia now you're going to need to try and bifurcate all the different elements of, of the payments that you're making for all the different types of things that you're receiving um, and, and also value them in an appropriate way is going to be extremely challenging. Mm. Very much, very much. Paul, maybe we'll turn to you. That other element we spoke about, low corporate tax rate jurisdiction, which given the breadth of everything else seems to be really important to work out whether these rules might apply to you or not. Maybe if you could talk a bit about how that's defined, because it's different to what we've seen in some other rules, isn't it? Yeah, 
That's right, Peter. Um, so it is a new concept, to your point, um, uh, a new style of definition that they've introduced or sought to introduce. Um, and essentially, it's um, uh, focused on headline corporate tax rate, um, but with some exceptions, you might say. So as distinct, perhaps, from an effective tax rate concept, it's more of a headline uh, type concept, but with, with some perhaps potential nuances there. Um, and um, maybe picking up on some sort of global policy, it's a 15% floor type of concept, uh, which synchronizes with, uh, to some extent, you know, Pillar 2, which we'll touch on as well. So that, that's essentially how it's uh, 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 drafted at, at the moment. Um, but, but in terms of the, the nuance, um, one of the, the, the paragraphs in the definition does um, uh, focus on the lowest rate for uh, different types of income in a particular country. Um, and, and that does raise questions around um, how exactly is that meant to apply? Um, and we may have some, some jurisdictions where there may very well be some lower rate um, of, of tax for certain types of income. And if that, in fact, were to be the case, then that may um, make that country um, a low-tax country, potentially regardless of whether um, you know, a particular corporate um, has that type of income. So it just might make that that, that particular country uh, on the low low tax list, so to speak. Um, so that's something that uh, I think we'll need a little bit more clarity in, in some of the consultation pro process to see exactly what's the scope of that, um, uh, given that's such a critical um, component of the definition. Um, and 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 you know I think that's 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 the point is that that we 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 spoken earlier about the breadth of some of the other concepts, um, the fact of having to um, be quite potentially liberal and how one defines intangible, exploits intangibles, and then um, the tracing, so to speak, um, through the, the global chain, including associates potentially, what then becomes a critical um, question is, well, which jurisdictions, you know, are we, are we looking towards? Um, and that's where this, this, this concept is, is quite important to focus on and work out to see how, how many jurisdictions one might need to sort of think about in the context of these rules. Um, so that, that, that's, a, that's a big part of it. And um, we, we, we spoke about, uh, uh, you know, maybe the policy is, is synchronising to some extent with Pillar 2. Um, that's something that's quite interesting as well insofar as at the moment there isn't uh, any explicit um, uh, you know, indication of how uh, the, the, the expected Pillar 2 rules are going to interact with these, these rules um, and um, consequently right now there is a question as to whether you know on a particular reading you might see the potential for uh, not only these rules to apply and potentially deny a tax deduction um, but also you know in, in down the track you know the pillar two rules get um, uh, you know, get, get sort of implemented whether that will also um, result in some adjustment there and the two don't necessarily um, uh, offset each other and we'll end up potentially with some sort of double tax scenario. So that, that is something that I think uh, it needs a bit more um, sort of understanding in terms of the consultation process at the moment, but, but quite, quite relevant right now to think about. Because mm, these rules do not use the pillar two uh, definition of how you work out your tax rate. And so, yeah, clearly there is a difference and, uh, and, and that, could, uh, that could come to bear. Um, and there can be double tax in some other ways, Paul, can't there? Because... The, the rules around what is tax doesn't seem to pick up withholding tax, 
doesn't seem to pick up tax under CFC rules, um, or in fact, Philip Sutopak tax is just mentioned. So mm. uh, the spectre of potential double taxation does seem to loom large here, mm. concerningly. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and um, I mean, to use the withholding tax as a probably easy illustration of the, of the question is that um, you pay a royalty, it's going to be subject to royalty withholding tax. If there's a treaty, it may be adjusted uh, down from 30%. Um, that may indeed be the current fact pattern some of our listeners, um, if these rules get introduced as they stand and that that payment is going to a, a low tax jurisdiction as defined, it may mean that in addition to the withholding tax, there is now uh, some denial of the deduction in respect of that payment, which yeah is a, is a form of double taxation, mm. one might suggest. <laughs> mm. um, so that is, a, that is how they seem to read right now, um, and it will be uh, important to, to see and understand if that's the intention uh, as we work through the consultation process. Yeah, important things to consult the Treasury on. And just flagging for our listeners, so um, these are things we've picked up, but of course, as you're listening and thinking later on, please do reach out and feed into us things that you think are important because we are very keen to work with Treasury to ensure these rules are workable um, and that we don't have unintended outcomes. Okay, so I think we've covered... I think we've covered kind of the core aspects of that. Let's go to some examples um, and talk about some scenarios where this might apply. Sophie, perhaps if you lead off. Yeah, sure. So Jen and I are going to talk through a few examples where we're going to try and flesh out some of the implications of the new rules, noting, of course, there are probably hundreds of different types of examples um, where some of our listeners or that their arrangements might be impacted. So um, unfortunately, we don't have time to go through hundreds and that would send you all to sleep. So let's just focus on a few basic ones. The first one is um, a more simplistic example example and it involves a multinational enterprise operating in the fast-moving consumer good industry. The parent entity is located in what is categorised as a low corporate tax jurisdiction. This parent entity originated the business and has significant economic substance including owning and developing the valuable intangible assets within the business. The Australian subsidiary operates as a manufacturer and distributor of products and um, in, in, within the Australian market. The Australian subsidiary receives a bundle of services and intangibles which it has categorised or labelled as a royalty for simplicity um, and which it pays royalty withholding tax on. And I think Jen's going to talk us through some of the implications of that, that example. Um, so in this case, I guess um, there's been a, an acceptance that the entirety of the payment made by the Australian subsidiary to the parent is a royalty, um, and so obviously withholding tax has been paid on that. Um, but now that it's been paid to a, a low corporate um, tax jurisdiction, that payment suddenly becomes non-deductible to Australia, um, and obviously it's on, on the gross payment. So obviously it's a very um, draconian measure. Um, so yes, historically, I guess a lot of companies might have um, messed just accepted the label characterisation of the payment entirely as being a royalty because there might not have been tax leakage. It could have been fully creditable in the jurisdiction of, um, of the parent entity. But with these rules, I guess that acceptance of the characterisation um, might not um, necessarily be appropriate going forward. Um, it might have been potentially an outcome that was negotiated with the ATO in the context of a dispute or even through an APA process. But now that I guess there is a, um, a non-deductible component to it, um, companies really do need to think about how they can actually um, 
show some more discipline in splitting out those payments, um, whether there's the need to actually have multiple intercompany agreements to separate out services and, um, and that relating to the use of intangible assets. Um, so these are things that um, we'll need to work through and there will be a significant evidence um, component to it, um, particularly where the position has been accepted for a long time in the past. And you can get this type of outcome. I know a lot of people, um, when they first were thinking about this policy and certainly before the government actually was elected, um, there was a prospect there might be a purpose test within it. And there is no purpose test within these draft rules. But that type of scenario, purpose test would actually work really well because the parent company has been from day one in that jurisdiction. There is no tax avoidance in a sense because royalty withholding tax is being paid at, at present. So there's no tax motivation purpose there inherent within that structure, but it could seem to get to not the right type of outcome that the rules need to be targeted. That's right. And there's also no no um, economic substance test mm. either, which mm. I think is a little bit different to some of the measures we've previously seen like DPT. Mm. So, and there is an economic substance. There's yes. a substance requirement for the patent box element of a low tax, low corporate tax rate jurisdiction, but not if you're a low corporate tax rate outside of a patent box, which is curious. Yeah, that's really, that is really interesting. And, you know, it's something that I think we need to be raising in, as part of the consultation yep. as to why there was, appears to be a conscious decision in that regard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The second example involves uh, what the ATO might argue is a mischaracterisation of a payment. It involves a multinational enterprise in the digital e-commerce industry. The parent entity is located in a low corporate tax jurisdiction and owns valuable intangible assets, similar to the first example. The Australian subsidiary also operates as a distributor. It buys software as a service and IT equipment. The IT equipment has um, some technology embedded within it and it purchases these these services and tangible goods from the parent entity for resale in the Australian market. And the related party dealings have been labelled within the multinational enterprise as a cost of goods sold, which incorporates both the software as a service and IT equipment um, purchases and sales. So in this scenario, the ATO may challenge the character of the payment and argue that although some of the payment is indeed for tangible goods and or services, part of the payment is also for intangibles. And that portion, the portion that relates to the intangibles, um, needs to be determined through some sort of a bifurcation exercise and be denied. Um, The question really then becomes how one would go through that that exercise of bifurcating the payment out and valuing the different components of the payments that's currently being made. Um, And and there are many different approaches that could be taken. Um, There could be a valuation exercise of the intangibles. There could be benchmarking in relation to intangibles. There could also be some sort of transfer pricing analysis done in relation to the other components. So, for example, value the services, value the the tangible goods, and the residual is the intangible. And you could end up with lots of different types of outcomes depending on what approach you take. And I think it would be extremely resource intensive for the ATO to actually um, administer this this aspect of the, the rules as well. And so, in that example you just talked through, I guess um, it's very much um, something the 
EAT is already looking at in the context of their software rule in TR twenty twenty one D four. So I guess um, there's probably also a, assuming I guess part of that payment constitutes a royalty, there will also be an exercise needed to work out what the royalty component is. And it's fair to say that that number um, that comes out might be quite different to the number that's calculated under this entangling measure, potentially. Yes, that's right, because we've also got the the um, the bifurcation element in relation to the royalty, but then we've got a much broader concept of an intangible, so it's a separate exercise. Um, and, of course, they've got different purposes. One is to, to deny a payment and one is to apply withholding tax. And I imagine with software as a service, there's the use of the result of an algorithm somewhere in there. So, so that, that breadth beyond a royalty. Okay. Jen's going to do example three, I think. Yep, so I'll talk through third example and I'll do it at a um, relatively high level. Um, so the third example is one where a lot of multinational groups will probably struggle with, um, where the Australian company um, um, does not make a direct payment to an associate in a low corporate tax jurisdiction. Um, so in this example, the Australian subsidiary or company makes a payment to an associate in a higher tax jurisdiction for a bundle of services, um, and that associate in the high tax jurisdiction in turn makes a payment to a, another associate in a, a low corporate tax jurisdiction for use of an intangible asset such as an algorithm. Um, so the service fee that the Australian company makes to the associate in the high-tax jurisdiction um, does not itself result in the Australian company having access to the algorithm itself, um, but potentially it's part of the services that is, is received by the Australian company. So it might receive, um, as part of those services, the output of the algorithm. Um, so given how broadly um, these provisions are drafted, um, the payment that the Australian company um, makes um, to the high tax jurisdiction um, might potentially fall in scope of these measures um, because exploit, as I said, could include um, accessing the output of an algorithm, um, which is a relatively novel and potentially very, very broad concept. Um, so additionally, whilst there isn't necessarily a direct connection between the two payment transactions, um, the rules don't require funding or direct nexus. Um, so the key question will then become, um, I guess, whether um, the arrangement will set a, a set of sorry. Um, the key question will then be um, whether there is an arrangement or set of arrangements that result in an associate deriving income in a local tax jurisdiction. Um, so, in this example, um, there are payments between three entities. Um, however, there could be situations where um, there's probably a less direct linkage. So, in the context of cost sharing arrangements, where you might have um, one of the cost share participants um, being resident in a low corporate tax jurisdiction for which um, Australia is not in one of those territories. Um, but um, given how broad these rules are, are written and whether there's a related set of arrangements, they could potentially be within scope. So this would be something we need to explore very closely. Okay. So much, uh, much to do with the tracing there, the, the things we are talking about before. No, fair enough. Um, any last thoughts on those examples? Yes, look, I, although we didn't want to um, go through too many types of examples, another one that came to mind was what we might call a recharacterization or reconstruction example, which is where an Australian entity is currently considered to be a sales and marketing entity, as an example, and receives a service payment from its um, parent entity or, or a regional hub. 
and um, un- using, with the use of other provisions, the ATO looks to reconstruct that arrangement so that um, either that might be through mail or potentially even through the transfer pricing provisions using the exceptions, um, recharacterising the, the arrangement so that the Australian entity is booking the sales onshore and making a payment offshore and then this this um, new measure could be, let's say, tacked on um, as a second step um, where the, the ATO could, could look to challenge the um, deduction. Mm. So not, not necessarily intuitive at first glance since the, the actual fact pattern involves an Australian entity paying offshore, uh, sorry, receiving from offshore rather than paying offshore. Um, but, but perhaps uh, a note there to think about that this is a really um, broad tool with a lot of sharp edges and how it will be used in practice. Because in a sense, there's so much it could apply to that perhaps it'll be really hard for the tax office to actually apply it to everything. And so the way they use it will be interesting and will that be in conjunction with some of the other integrity rules um, to, to try and drive behaviour or, or where they see something and they particularly want to um, you know, move the matter forward. So I think that, that'll be an interesting thing to keep an eye out for. Okay. Okay, so look, I think there's a lot for uh, our listeners to digest there, folks. So why don't we just wrap with some key messages? So, Paul, you're talking to a client, multinational group. Um, what are the key things that you're saying to them to think about now in preparation for these rules? Yeah. So, firstly, they start on the 1st of July 2023, um, which is not far away now at all. Um, that's a hard date. It's not tied to any tax year end or year end. So, that's something important, just a process that is very, very imminent. Um, and so when we've heard, you know, um, through the discussion today that they are um, broad and, and, and I think the, the natural uh, way to think about them is similar to the imported hybrid mismatch rules. The requirement to do more of a top-down uh, uh, examination of, 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 of your group and, again, with the asterisk that the group goes further than, than the hybrids, it includes associates, but you know, practically you're gonna start with the top down of your group. And um, you gotta you gotta look for um, jurisdictions that that the that the tax is is on the low side, right? And and because the definition as we spoke about earlier is unclear uh, at this stage, um, uh, certainly if the headline is below fifteen percent, then that, that's clearly on your A list. But I think um, our listeners should think about creating a B list of possibilities where there may be other jurisdictions that um, that could fall, you know, below fifteen percent because of the mechanics of the law, and, and, and start to create a B list to see what that looks like. Um, and, and that's really how one needs to start to filter um, and, and examine what's the, the potential scope of these rules and, and, and where might it touch the organisation, um, and then. Um, you get into more difficult questions around, okay, well, if there is a payment leaving Australia and there's exploitation in Australia and we've identified some low-tax jurisdictions, is there a way to now start to delve into the, the characterizations, as Sophie and Jen particularly have spoken about, of, of that, that payment? Can it be um, you know, apportioned between different components to identify what, what part of that is, is at risk under the rules? Uh, um, and then finally, um, even if there isn't an actual payment, uh, as, as Sophie touched on just at the end there at the case studies, um, 
if there's nonetheless exploitation in Australia of, of intangibles of any form, and in in the, the universe that you've identified, there's there's a low tax income recipient. Um, one also needs to think carefully about whether there could be some threat of an integrity reconstruction uh, situation, um, and 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 therefore, uh, even if there is an actual payment, that, that maybe there's still something there to think about. So. Um, so yeah, it's a it's an interesting exercise, Peter, to to sort of start to think about what to do um, and 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 the journey people need to go on. And um, clearly, the obvious point is to closely monitor these the, the, these draft rules through this consultation process, uh, particularly I think given uh, whether and how this may interact with the pillar two concepts, um, and then finally what the definition of what local tax um, uh, settles on. As we work through this consultation process, so I'd say that there's a fair bit to think about in the, in the next month or so, in particular. There is indeed. Well, team, I think we're just about out of time. Uh, so thank you, team, and thank you to our listeners. We hope you found that interesting. As I mentioned, um, we are very keen to hear from you. So if you have thoughts you'd like us to feed into our consultation, our submission on behalf of KPMG Treasury please do reach out to any of us here or to your usual KPMG contacts. And similarly, as you're thinking about the rules, please also reach out. We would uh, love to talk to you about them and, and help, uh, help you work your way through them because, uh, as Paul said, they're starting soon and there's a lot to think about. So thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of the KPMG Tax Now podcast. If you'd like to ask us a question, please send us an email at kpmgtaxnow at kpmg.com.au. Be sure to subscribe at kpmg.com forward slash au forward slash tax now or follow our LinkedIn page KPMG Tax Now Insights for regular updates. That's all for now. We look forward to sharing more insights with you soon.